Today we're going to talk about the fall. So normally here's Rob up here, and I was telling somebody he preaches the good news, like really, really good news, every Sunday, and then, like, then he he leaves, and then he, then I have to teach the bad news, and then when he gets back, it's more good news. <laughs> so, thanks a lot. The fall, right? The classic. I was going to come up here and pretend to eat it, but my kid said, no, nah, you probably shouldn't do that. Too soon. <laughs> Too soon, Dad. Um, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. This is, this is a pretty serious topic, but it's a foundational topic, and we all need, you know, as Christians, we need to know, like, why, why is the world full of misery and suffering out there? Like, this is, this is the day that we get our, our story on that, the bad news. So, but I can I can joke because I have the spark of of life because of Christ. Because of Christ, we have hope. We're not stuck in doom and gloom. We we have joy. Christ is the path back to God. This is the classic apple, right? Eve picked the apple off the tree. This is this is the story. Well, wasn't really an apple, but this is a nice shiny red apple, and I thought it'd be nice to have up here to like gesture to and stuff. Um, but I promise I will not take a bite of it. Let me pray. We'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that your word would go forth today and that we would pull from the story of the fall in Genesis 3. Lord, what you have for us, what you have for each one here, I pray that it would be your words that go forth and not mine. Um, we thank you for being here with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Rob had the good news for us, and we've been in a series of foundations, and Rob's, you know, he told us about, you know, going through Genesis 1 and 2, how God made everything, and he made it all very good. He ordered, he made everything, and then he ordered it, he arranged it, he made it orderly, he made it beautiful, and then he made man, and he said, this isn't, isn't good, then he made woman, and the man and the woman together are a team to fulfill what, what we talked about the uh, last couple of weeks, the creation mandate, or the dominion mandate. And that is to fill and order the earth. And I really liked how we talked about last week how God's image in us is uniquely in men and women. And it, it wasn't enough to just to be in the man. God made the woman too. At the end of the sixth day, God looked at everything he'd made and he said, this is very good, very good. On the seventh day, God rested, and the seventh day had no end of the day. That was the evening and morning, the end of the seventh day. We're in the seventh day right now. The seventh day is where God enjoys relationship with his creatures, and that's us, with the stewards of the earth, men and women. And so today we're going to get the bad news. So how did everything go south, right? How did, where did it all go wrong? Where did the wheels come off the bus? Um, you can't have the good news without the bad news. You can't have the gospel without realizing you're a sinner. So if you all have your Bibles, we're going to be in chapter 3, and we're going to be in 1 to 19. The fall didn't surprise God. He's using, currently, he's currently using the rebellious nature of the devil and, and the sin of man for his glory, and we're going to talk about that. So, what was the world like before the fall? What was the good news that Rob had the privilege of 
telling us about the last couple of weeks. Um, I'm going to read from the Westminster Larger Catechism because it's, it's really profound. And one of the questions in there says, what was the providence of God towards man in the state in which he's created? And here's the answer. The providence of God towards man in the state in which he's created was placing him in paradise, appointing him to tend it, giving him the freedom to eat of any of the fruit of the trees, of the earth, what the earth grew. He put the creatures, all the creatures, under man's dominion, and he ordained marriage for man's help, giving him, God also gave him relationship with himself, and instituted the Sabbath. God entered into a covenant of life with mankind upon condition of perfect obedience, of which the tree of life, not the tree of good and evil, the tree of life standing in the middle of the garden was the pledge. And he did forbid to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. So this is the world as it once was. Paradise. Literally paradise. <clears throat> Genesis 3, chap, uh, chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any, of, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. I couldn't read past that. that. That is a weird statement. The serpent was more crafty than any other of the beasts of the field that God made. So we're talking pre-fall, right? The pro- <laughs> it's weird. The snake animal, somehow smart. Somehow smart, crafty, considerable intelligence. In plain reading, the snake was the smartest land animal. And that... That kind of stuns me. Um, we don't know for sure if it's the factor of God just chose to give that animal intelligence. Maybe all the animals could talk back then. Who knows? Maybe just the snake. But it's interesting to me. Um, could have been a factor of this of a supernatural power using the snake to tempt Eve. Either way, it's fascinating to picture an unblemished world with potentially talking smart snakes. Interesting. I don't. I don't want to blow past that verse because it's fascinating to me. But to me, that points to the, the all-powerful nature of God and the perfection of his creation. Like, God can do literally anything. And this tells me that. So who is the serpent? Well, the snake is named in this passage. Um, it doesn't even use the word Satan or the devil. Um, it's confirmed later in the Bible to be Satan. In the original Hebrew... The word for Satan is used as a title. It's, it, uh, it means adversary or one who resists or one who accuses, like in the story of Job, um, or the, the challenger, the opposer. In this way, it's a title. And it's used all through the Old Testament um, to describe beings who oppose or come against or, or um, accuse. Um, we know from the story of Job that this adversary is actually at one point in the throne room of heaven. He's in there, and they're all having a meeting up there, and he comes up there, and he says, hey. And God says, you haven't checked out my servant Job. Now, that, that's one conversation I wouldn't want to have my name attached to. Um, so, and, and the, you know, the serpent in that story said, accuses Job and says, ah, he doesn't really love you. He only loves you because you've made his life great by blessings. Um, so, 
um, Zechariah 3 also speaks of that being with as somebody who has spiritual access to God, um, standing there with an intent to accuse. And later in the Bible, in Isaiah and Ezekiel, their, their prophetic visions give us more clues like about some of the history there and who this person was and how uh, Satan and his angels fell from heaven and um, sort of the uh, origination of, of uh, the Satan creature. There's a lot of mysteries to that. But we do know that there was spiritual battle raging even before we get to this, this physical battle with Adam and Eve. So whatever the snake was in the story, we do know it represented evil. It was crafty, it was opposing, it was deceptive, and by definition, anti-God. So, in verse 1, here's what the serpent says to Eve. He says to the woman, Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So, you notice there's no lie in that statement. Did God really say you, you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? And so, there's no... He wasn't, remember this is a crafty snake, crafty. He said, There's, did God really say? The purpose of this question was to sow doubt. There's to sow doubt in the mind of Eve on the truthfulness of God's word. Basically, he says, hey, Eve, are you, sh- are you sure? Are you sure this is what God meant? This is what he said. So the craftiness is right there in the questioning. He didn't come out of the gate with a, with a bold, outright lie. would have been too obvious. But instead, he asked a seemingly simple question. One that Eve would be sure to know the answer to, interestingly. It's clever. It's clever bait. But it did cause the doubt to grow in Eve's mind. Um, she was definitely falling for this trap. So she helpfully clarifies. She's like, oh, I know the answer to this one. She clarifies for the snake, and also I believe she's clarifying for herself, like a child who's not sure if, if L comes before K, so they've got to start the alphabet from the very beginning to get up to that point. Um, so here's a response, Genesis 3, verse 2. The woman says to the serpent, We may eat of the fr- fruit from the trees of the garden, but God does say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. So Eve is very helpful in her clarification. And we can believe that uh, she remembered and she repeated it accurately. So she wasn't fooled at this point, but she did have doubt. The serpent follows up in verses 4 and 5 with his outright lie. He says, oh, you won't certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, the serpent says, you could be autonomous like God, you can increase your intelligence or your wisdom to match his, and there's going to be no consequences. He flat out said, you will not certainly die. A complete lie. Which, unfortunately, did work. His lie worked on the woman, and it could only have worked because she started doubting. The doubt from his first question laid the groundwork for it. The doubt was like the spark of rebellion in her heart, and it was ignited by her own desire. It's important to know that Eve wanted the things that the, that the serpent was selling. She wanted autonomy. She wanted to be like God. She wanted more intelligence. She wanted these things. So what did she do? 
Let's look at verse 6. When the women saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. So when we're tempted, the, the time to defeat temptation is at the very first appearance of it. But after she had this conversation, she went back and took another look. She took a closer look. She's like examining it. She saw, oh, this is good for food. This thing is beautiful to look at. And it'll make me wise. It'll give me wisdom. She went back and pondered. She let the sinful idea just roll around in her mind. Just a little bit more. She judged the tree by these three factors, edibility, beauty, and the ability to give her knowledge or wisdom, or what she thought was knowledge and wisdom. So it turns out lingering over the beauty and the supposed benefits of sin is a bad idea then, and it's still a bad idea now. So if we want to have more power over temptation, we have to remember, don't do what Eve did. Don't go back and take that second look. Don't go, man, that really, really looks nice. Look how red that is. It does look delicious. Now that I'm now that I'm staring at it and like occupying my mind with it, that looks great. So we need to stop looking and stop pondering the benefits. Stop pondering the pleasure. Um, when we were uh, young parents, as some of you are now, we quickly learned that our kids have a tendency to misbehave. Big surprise, right? We quick, quickly figured that out. And also, they had zero ability to turn away from temptation. You know, like a young child, this, they, don't, they don't have the tools for that yet. They can't do it. And so like many of you guys did, I'm sure you figured out redirection was the key, right? You take what they want and you just you take it from their sight. You remove it so they can't do like Eve did and be like, whew, man, I really do want that. That looks great. So what what happens when you can't remove it? Or when you, you know, son, you need to learn how to be in this room with that thing that you want, but you can't have it. Well, the distraction technique. Anybody in the stage of life who are still using that one? Uh, the distraction technique. So we as parents, we help them avert their gaze. We help them not go back to the thing that they couldn't have the sinful desire and obsess over it. Think about how it's beautiful. Think about how it's good to eat. So, and usually, once you break the child's gaze, you've broken the temptation. They can, they can go on about their day. They can do something else. You've won that battle. They're no longer fixated on it because we stop them from following through to sin because we as adults have learned how to do that and they have not yet. That's one of our main jobs as parents. We help the kids not foster their fixation on a temptation like Eve did. She went back to the tree for a close look and that resulted in what? More willpower? No. It resulted in more desire. Eventually she craved... She craved the fruit of the tree, and then she caved in, and she took it, and she ate it. Verse 6, continuing, she says, um, she also, Genesis 6, 3, 6 says, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Key words in that sentence being who was with her, right? This makes it clear to me that they're in on it together. Equal. 
in their sin, equal in their rebellion against God. Adam went right along for the ride. So we don't know if he was there for like the beginning when the crafty snake, the talking animal who's smarter than all the other animals, was tempting Eve. I kind of think maybe he wasn't there because I think maybe he would have stepped, stepped on this thing. Um, but he was certainly with her when she took another look. He was present during and after. During and after Eve's sin. It's likely that he was with her when she said, hey, let's take another walk up to the middle of the garden and just take a look at this. I've heard some new news about this tree we're not supposed to eat. I just want to go see. It's it's likely that he was with her during this time because he was there when she picked it. He was there when she studied it, when she pulled it off, when she touched it as she wasn't supposed to. And he followed her lead, and they sinned together. That's the fall of man right there. So Adam really blew it. Now, we all know this. Um, Adam is not innocent. He could have chosen at any point not to follow along. He relinquished his duty as head of household. He sinned by partaking in the act. Also, he sinned by failure to, by failing to do his God-given duty to protect and defend his wife from evil. He didn't fulfill his responsibility as head of the family. Given his representative role as first of all creation, the actions that him and his wife took on were his problem. They were his responsibility. They were within his power to monitor and his power to control. Eve's temptation and and her guilt that followed was definitely his problem. And this is how mankind fell into rebellion against against God, who was pure and holy, and he had put them in paradise. We can't forget that God was completely, as we read back in the Westminster Confession, he was completely pure, holy, generous, good, loving. And this is what they did. Um, It reminds me of Romans 5, 12. I'm going to read that real quick. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man was Adam, and death came through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. This is an example of how Adam is the representation, he's the representative head of the whole of creation, of all of mankind from there. So what are the consequences? Let's read on, verse 7. Then the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Hey, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, this woman who you gave to me to be with me, she gave me of the fruit and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. There's a lot going on there, but there's definitely not a lot of taking responsibility, which is the first thing that jumps out. So permanent at this point, a permanent separation came in between God and man. 
having sinned and gained the knowledge of good and evil, they also gained the knowledge that they were, they were naked and they couldn't be anything but ashamed. They tried to hide from God in the bushes. <laughs> like, really? They tried, to, they tried to hide. They literally tried to hide from God in the bushes. Um, they were so ashamed, they evaded responsibility and they shifted the blame. Adam shifted the blame to Eve. Eve shifted it to the super crafty ground animal. So, it's pretty bad news, isn't it? God chose not to instantly destroy humanity, which he totally could have. He totally could have. But they died spiritually that day, and physical death, of which there was no such thing, was now a certainty. Physical death was now a certainty. So this new sinfulness of a man consists of the guilt of the first sin, which removed the righteousness that they had from the beginning, from the moment of creation. It also fully corrupted nature going forward into the future. By this, we are all warped, the whole human race. We are warped to do what? We are warped to oppose God, to be separate from God, to not be able to be in his presence. We're now continually inclined to do evil as human, as human beings. Every human, every person, except for one, has walked this path of evil by choice. It's important to, to understand that. We inherited this sinful nature from our first parents, and it's been passed all the way down. And we see that even in our, our young kids. They hit that stage where it's clear they have a sinful nature. They clear they have a self-will. We lost the fatherhood of God, and we became children of the devil. There's one point in, in the New Testament where Jesus calls the Pharisees brood of vipers. This is what he's calling them. He's calling them children of the serpent, children of the devil. Without Jesus, that's what we are. So why is this a problem? Because God's holy. He's perfect. Sin can't exist in his presence. If you put a light bulb in a room and you turn it on, the shadows can't remain. They have to flee. Because of the sin within us and the choice, and the choices we make as a result, we are mandated. We have to be separate from God. We cannot be in the presence of God. We all are condemned. And we're fully guilty and we're fully rebellious as human beings. And we are fully deserving of God's perfect and just wrath. The prophet Isaiah said that our righteousness, which by meaning the very best we can manage, me at my very best, you at your very best, it's very, me being as good as I can with all my effort is like filthy rags when compared to God. Filthy rags. Not even like slightly, slightly dirty rags. Like filthy rags. We don't understand how holy God is. But it's... it's it's something that's almost unimaginable. When Isaiah later has a vision of God's holiness, this, these are his words. He says, woe, woe is me. He sees God, and he gets, he gets a glimpse of God's holiness. He says, I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. He's basically saying, I'm toast. Woe is me. Imagine. God is like the sun. 
right? The epitome of light and heat. It's millions of degrees. It's super hot. It's super bright. Compared to the sun, we're like icy, icy snowflakes. You just, you just can't. We can't exist in our sinful state anywhere near a perfect God. He is holy and just, and because he's perfect, he must punish sin because he's consistent and impartial. This is the nature of the Lord. So what do we have next? We've got the curse, the famous curse of man. Verse 16, I'm going to jump there real quick. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So we need to pay attention to how God, how he's perfect and he's just, and he always brings the proper punishment. He is not unfair in any way. So what was Eve's part in the mandate? She was to bear children and fill the earth with more of God's image. That's what kids are. They're God's image. And she was to help Adam with his mandate to subdue, to tend, to order the planet. So the curse made her job, her role in this, more painful and difficult. Her role as helper to her husband is also cursed with difficulty, as her desire would now be contrary to her husband. That's an interesting statement. Just as she rebelled against God, the wages of of that sin was a lifetime of inclination to rebellion. The woman is created to want to be led, to want to help Adam in his job. But now, because of the fall, she would want to oppose the husband. And it's that desire to rebel, to, to usurp authority in a way. And this, this, corrupt, this corrupted femininity re- responds in a corrupted masculinity. It says, but he shall rule over you. And I take that, I take that to mean that this is why we have the war between the sexes, the so-called. It's been like this from the beginning. Eve rebelled against God. And she rebelled against Adam. So woman's relationship with God and man were cursed. Notice how the proper punishment has been applied by God. And to Adam, verse 17 to 19, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain... You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you will return. This is the curse on Adam. So for his sin, Adam's part in the mandate was also made painful and difficult. God cursed the ground so that it no longer easily grew the food that they needed. and no longer easily or automatically produced food. Can you imagine how easy it would have been to be a farmer before the fall? I don't really even know what Adam did. Maybe he just like raked the leaves, I don't know. But <laughs> after the curse, it got hard, it got painful, it got difficult, and... As a slap in the face, after struggling with the dirt all his life, Adam would die and go to the dirt. Adam would die and go return to the, to the dust. 
after having to struggle with it his whole life. So Adam rebelled against God, so his relationship with God, with God was cursed, and the earth was cursed to rebel against Adam. Think about the mandate, what that means for Adam to tend the earth. Well, he's getting rebellion coming back at him from the very earth. His job to order and tend. Not only was um, men and women corrupted, but all of creation was corrupted at the moment. Romans 8.22 says, For we know that the, the whole creation has been groaning together as in the pains of childbirth. So itself, the whole earth, death entered the world for the first time. The people and the animals went from being vegetarians to being carnivores. There was no, there was no death before the fall. There's no death when you eat fruit off a tree. But now things were killing and eating each other. Physical death became inevitable. Cells started decaying. DNA started replicating imperfectly. Um, that's what happens after sin. Sin corrupted the whole planet. little side note. We should never, as believers, we should never adopt the idea that God somehow used evolution to create life. Like, you know how sometimes you, you think, oh, scientists have this figured out, so maybe I need to borrow some of that. And here's the problem with that. Because we're talking about death here, evolution requires millions of cycles of death. So a, a perfect God who loves and makes life can never use death as a tool to build life. He couldn't have said, he couldn't have used evolution through millions of years or whatever, and they got to Adam and even said, this is very good. After having used death. It's not the God that we know. It's not the God that's real. It's insane to imagine that. So, there's one other thing that happened. The God's hierarchy was inverted. So, his original setup as the only supreme being, he created and sustained it every, and sustains everything. And then he made man and he said, hey, your job is to tend, to order, to fill the planet. And then he made woman as his helper in this job. And then he gave them both the dominion of the plants and animals. So it was God, man, woman, plants and animals. So in the fall we get a complete inversion. The snake, remember the super crafty land, land animal? He defeated the woman in a battle of wits. He caused her to doubt, and he tempted her. So now you've got the snake. And then Eve sinned, and then she helped Adam sin, and then they fled and hid from God. And at the bottom of that nowadays, we have the planet, the environment itself at the top of that order. Um, it's no different from the ancient nature worship. So God's order, God's hierarchy was inverted. God, who was at the top of the, the tree, was now at the bottom of the tree. Mankind couldn't even be around him. They hid in the bushes. They hid from him. So mankind is designed to worship, and will always worship something. We are designed by God to worship him. It's not a matter of whether, but which. Whether we worship or not. It's a matter of which thing will we worship. Even atheism is a religion that worships self through logic and reason, of course, which they imagine comes from the self. 
but without God, rational thought is not even possible. And I liked how Rob said a couple weeks back that, that statement, right, to that effect. You can't even have order. You can't have logic. You can't have reason without the Lord, without a God who makes it all possible. Without his standard, there's only nonsense. If we're not worshiping God, we're going to be worshiping something else. We're going to be worshiping the snake. We're going to be worshiping money, comfort, intellect, fame. It's going to be something. And the devil's plan was to decrease the image of God on the earth. And that was the goal of this. This is really interesting. Satan opposes all of, God plan, all of God's plan, right? Remember how we talked about his name means like one who opposes? So his goal is to, to stop the creation mandate. He stopped the ordering and stopped the filling of the earth. He doesn't want the world to be full of God's image. He, he can't stand that. Who is God's image? Men and women. That's his goal. He partially achieved this goal with the introduction of death into the world. But he still had to in, deal with the inevitable um, fruitfulness of, Eve, of Adam and Eve. So what, why did the ancient pagans uh, promote androgyny? There's a blurring of lines that all sin heads to between men and women. And they sacrificed babies and they, they promoted androgyny because all of Satan's end goals, his end goal is less of God's image in the earth. So these pagan ideals obviously are pretty pretty common in our society today. Ideas like just getting rid of the male and female biblical roles, putting women in the military to fight in combat. That's that's going to end up in her not nurturing life, and that's going to end up in her not filling the earth with more of God's image. Transgenderism, sodomy, abortion, all of that gets rid of God's image on the earth. And so we need to look ahead. The logical end of that is the opposite of the mandate. It's the opposite of what God wanted for the planet. So it's all really bad news, isn't it? Lucky me. Thankfully, and by God's mercy, it's only half the story, right? It's only half the story. You can never stop there. If you stop there, you're, you're missing something very important. Thankfully, God had a plan. He knew that we're doomed. He knows we're doomed. He knows we're in need of rescuing. And so, what's his plan? What's his ultimate purpose? What's he going to do? What's he going to do about this? Well, most of us have read further past this page, which is good. It'd be hard to get up in the morning, right? Um, God chose to save us. Why? So that he might be glorified. We're going to talk a little bit about this. So I'm going to back up just a little bit. I skipped over the good news because it was out of order. Not really. Um, Verse 15, chapter 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and he shall he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He's talking to the serpent. He's saying, somebody's coming. Somebody's coming from the offspring of this lady, of Eve. He's going to crush your head, and you'll bruise his heel. 
So God lays out some punishment for the serpent. He doesn't get away with this. So we, this is the first glimpse of the gospel in the Bible, all the way back in the third chapter of Genesis. This is actual hope for the future. There's two rival factions. There's the seed or the ancestor of the serpent and the, and the ancestor of the woman. In this passage, we get a promise of a future man who's going to come along and defeat this, this thing once and for all. And, of course, we know that's Jesus, right? That's the good news. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So this was God's plan from the beginning. The purpose of this plan was to bring him glory. And Jesus will undo the results of the fall, and he will bring eternal life back to men, back to anyone who accepts it. So something must be said here. Why, why, did, God, why did God do this, right? Why, if he's God, he, he couldn't have been surprised by the fall, because God knows everything, right? If, he, if he's not all-knowing, he wouldn't be God. There's no blind fate, there's no luck, there's no chance. Nothing happens without playing right into God's purposes. In the Westminster Catechism, we read, what are the decrees of God? This is early in the Shorter Catechism. And it says, the decrees of God are His eternal plan, according to the purpose of His will, by which, for His own glory, He has foreordained whatever comes to pass yet in such a manner as to be in no way the author of sin. That's interesting. So he does things according to the purpose of his will, because of his own reasons, right? Why? For his own glory, in a way that he is not responsible or the author of sin. God was not surprised by the fall. It's harder for us in our limited view to understand that God's plan goes all the way back, including... Before the initial problem here, God understood what was coming. He wasn't taken surprised by it, but he had his reasons. And it's hard to get for us to get our head around. He has an eternal, perfect plan that makes everything fit together for, to fulfill the plan for his glory. There's no way to get around the complete sovereignty of God in the Bible. It's, it's all through the Bible this is really a story about God. It's not about us. God is sovereign, and he has plans that we can understand that include sin. It includes us having free will, including the free will to do what's not right, what's wrong. So we're not puppets in that sense. God's eternal plan includes our freedom to act as we desire. By default, we desire only what is opposed to him, where our choices are part of the cause and effect that God built into the universe. We fulfill God's purposes, and there's tons of examples of this in the, in the Bible. Being the great I am, he, had, he ordained everything that happens, including the fall. Is that weird? It's hard to get our heads around, but he wouldn't be God if it caught him by surprise. 
So how do we know this? Because God has chosen to reveal his methods in his word. Ephesians 1, 11 to 12 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is where the catechism gets its, its phrasing. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who, are the, we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So that's the ultimate purpose, the praise of his glory. Now remember I said, I said this earlier, but it's important to note that God doesn't need more glory, right? He's God. He has all the glory already. So what are we talking about? What does that mean? Acts 17.25 says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. This is one of the things we need to understand about God. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's not going to poof out of existence if we don't glorify him in some way. He has all the glory already. To continue Acts 17.25, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is completely supreme here. What his actions do is they cause more people to display the glory that he already has so that more people will worship him. More people will point to him. More people will lift him up so that others can see him. More people will praise him. And in this way, the statement glory to God means I recognize God's glory. I see God's glory and I want you to see it too. So, Everything he does is for his purpose and for his glory, including the fall. He sent his only son, Jesus, to take the punishment for our sin. The creation, the fall, and the consequent salvation of humankind is all for his glory. For us to partake in this final salvation, to be reunited with God, it's, it's the ultimate goal of, of salvation, is to be reunited with him. And all we have to do is believe in, in Jesus, what Jesus did. John three sixteen says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is what Jesus did for us. That's the good news. It's not the end of the story after God lays down the curse on man, the woman, and the, the serpent. He had in mind something for his glory. And for every person who comes to Christ, he gets glory. He gets glory when someone who's ill praises God despite their illness. He gets glory when we raise a child in this world to love and serve him and to do good as Christ would do to others despite the brokenness of the world. He, he gets recognized he gets pointed to so that others can see what God's all about. It's good news. What can we learn from this? Well, this, this series is called Foundations, and it's a good series because we as believers, there are certain things believers should know about this. We have to know what's in the Word, or else our worldview is going to be incorrect and not ordered by God. And I would say one of the most practical lessons from this passage, was to pay, to, to pay close attention to Eve's temptation. 
We talked about that some. We shouldn't take turn and take a closer look at temptation as Eve, as Eve did. We shouldn't dwell on the supposed beauty, beauty or benefits of something that is opposite of God, something that opposes God. Sin does look good a lot of times. The lesson for us is not to do like Eve did. Don't go back and say, wow, that's beautiful. That's going to be delicious, and it'll make me smarter. Instead, we should ask the Lord to help us. There's a reason. There's a reason why he said in the Lord's Prayer, famously, says this, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is real practical advice. We should all be praying this every day. There's a reason why it's in the Lord's Prayer. What's our part in this? Our part is to turn away from temptation. Turning away is, you know what the the fancy word for that is? Repentance. Repentance is to turn away from something. Eve could have repented of her doubt. Instead of going back to that tree, she could have turned the other way and went into the awesome paradise that God had put them in. There's a lesson there. We should make this prayer our daily prayer. And we always repent. Repent is one, it's not one and done. And that's why you've heard me pray that the Holy Spirit would grant repentance. Repentance, repentance is a gift from Him and it's a condition of salvation. In our sin, if we're fully lost in our sin and we don't have the Savior, we can't repent. This Holy Spirit has to ignite it in us. There's a, there's a whole other sermon there that I can't get into. In the story of the fall, number two, we learned that the creation was corrupted and humanity was separated from God into a life of misery. Remember he put us in paradise? We must understand that when sin entered the world, it's the source of pain and suffering, not God. Because of this corruption, there's no way we can save ourselves because it's in us, it's in our very nature. It's something we must understand. There's no, there's no man-made philosophy of, of like bettering ourselves. You know, I can't be like anti-whatever. I can't be... There's there's nothing that we can invent in our heads without Jesus that will close that gap between us and God. It doesn't exist. And the world is full of those philosophies right now. And it's real easy to get caught up in this stuff. Well, this is what everyone's doing. Wow, it's, it's like, you guys heard the term virtue signaling? Like, I could virtue signal with the best of them. <laughs> but it does nothing. It literally does nothing. There's no way that any of these ideas coming at us from society can save even one person a reunite, a reunite one person with their creator. The only thing we can do is stick close to Christ. He's the only path to salvation. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way. That's, that is foundational. And so, number three, we also have to understand that God's able to, and he does, use evil for his good purposes. He used the murder of Jesus to save the human race. That's just that's the biggest example. That his grand plan includes his redeeming all of the evil committed in history. I gotta tell you, I have a hard time getting my head around this. There's, you know, I can pick the worst thing I can think of, and I'm like, God could redeem that, but He can. He, he's to use the word big for God. It doesn't even begin. He's outside of the created universe. He can do it. He can do it, and he will. 
So stay in the word. There's many examples of this happening. We need to understand the last point, that God is sovereign. He's literally all-powerful and all-knowing. And if he wasn't, he wouldn't be God. If we could describe God, if we could define him or fully understand him, he wouldn't be God. There's literally no way that you can get your head around it because then you'd be God, if that makes sense. He's able to use events, including those caused by freely acting human beings. And he uses these events to achieve what? His will and his purposes for his glory. This is what he does. So we need to submit ourselves to his will every day. We need to take on the position of humility. And we need to, to pray the other part of the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's saying, that's saying God, you're my king. I want your will to be done in my life. I'm submitting myself under you on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is our king. And he will rule the whole earth. And you're all going to be there. No, no one in this room will be absent for that day. I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow. But I'm going to say in one way or another, we'll all be there for it. He will rule from heaven until he's placed every enemy under his feet. And the last enemy is death. That's how it's going to happen. All right. Last half, some good news. Hope that softened the blow of the, the bad news a little. Um, so let's pray and we'll be done. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your ability to read, to, uh, to teach us from it. We thank you for, for our ability to learn. Give us eyes, Lord, to see your truths. We thank you that you have a sovereign plan that includes our free will, Lord, that includes sin and death. You're able to redeem it in ways that we can't fully understand. Help us, Heavenly Father, to trust you completely in that because we know you're God. We know it's within your power. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of salvation. Please enable us daily to repent. Enable us daily to turn away from temptation. Grant us a hunger, Lord, for your word. We know your truths reside in it. Give us ears to hear and just soft hearts to understand and accept it. We thank you that you promised to complete the work in us that you've started. And we can take that as a fact. Thank you that for that, Lord. So may your will be done in our lives on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.